This is Power Players with Dan Clark. This is a podcast interview with Executive Director of the Center for Entrepreneurship in the John M. Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University, my dear friend, Dr. Michael Glauser. Welcome to Power Players with Dan Clark, former athlete, Hall of Fame speaker, New York Times bestselling author, and high-performance business coach, where each week... I bring you an inspiring message from an extraordinary human being who will share their secrets on how you can tap into your personal power to become everything you were born to be. Thanks for spending some time with me today. In this episode, my dear, dear friend and mentor, Dr. Michael Glauser, entrepreneur, author, speaker, business consultant, and university professor, who is also the director of the Global Seed Poverty Alleviation Program, helping people around the world benefit their communities through entrepreneurship, shares his life and passion for building companies in retail, wholesale, and education, giving us a snapshot synopsis of his four best-selling books, including his latest book, One People, One Planet, which presents six universal truths to help us increase our happiness, improve our relationships, and create greater civility in organizations. And may I add to that, help heal America. Welcome to Power Players with Dan Clark. And as I usually say, today's episode is going to change your life. But I mean it this time. (laughs) One of my dearest friends on the planet, not just a friend, but a mentor, a colleague, someone who guides me uh, spiritually, intellectually, financially, He's the first one that illuminated in my life that there's no such thing as a financial crisis, only an idea crisis. Ideas create income. The heart and soul of entrepreneurship. His name is Michael Glauser, entrepreneur extraordinaire, best-selling author, uh, university professor, business coach, starter of amazing programs at some major universities that I've had a chance to participate in as an eyewitness to see how amazing his organizational skills are as a leadership high-performance business coach. Michael Glauser, welcome to Power Players. You truly are one. Thank you, Dan. That was quite flattering. So this Some is, of it's true. That's yeah, funny. <laughs> so let's just jump right into the questions that I know all of you uh, viewers and subscribers want to know. How did you get started? When did you first realize that you had this entrepreneurial bug inside of your DNA that makes you continuously curious, that makes you as an elderly gentleman, not as old as me, still tuned into your childlike wonderment? Take us back, Michael. So when I was in college, I I fell in love with the idea of building organizations. I know that's odd, but I love the idea of building organizations of humans achieved very important objectives, and there were fabulous places to work, where everyone loved to work. And I thought, if I could learn how to create those organizations, that would be awesome. So I went straight through school, got the bachelor's, master's, and PhD, and went off to teach at the University of North Carolina at the young age of 27 years old. So when I was in college, I fell in love with the idea of building organizations. I thought it would be really cool to learn how to put people together create really important objectives, create great products and services, and have it be a place where people would love to work, where job satisfaction was high. I thought that would be a really important life skill to have. So I went right through school to learn those skills through the bachelor's, master's, and PhD. 
And then when I got to my first job at the University of North Carolina, I walked into the classroom, and it was a, an evening MBA class. And you're only 27 years old. And I was 27 years old, and I was the <laughs> youngest guy in that class by probably 10, maybe 15 years. These were all wow. executives from the furniture industry and the tobacco industry in North Carolina. And I quickly thought, you know, I need to probably go out and do real business if I'm ever going to be a thought leader in this field of entrepreneurship. So I stayed and taught for four years. Then I left, and I went out and spent the next 20 years starting and building companies. Uh, I started six companies, sold uh, four of those, uh, two of them wow. to public companies. Wow. And then I jumped back into the university life. Uh, I've been a consultant along the way and an author as well, but I've really enjoyed teaching at Utah State University. So when we first got connected at the, at the deep level, I mean the real friendship, mutual respect and support level, was when I got a chance to witness the program that you had started and founded at Westminster College. Can you tell us a little bit about that entrepreneurship program? Yeah, so we, uh, uh, I was on a board of advisors at Westminster College and asked to come and teach and help build a center for entrepreneurship. It was the Institute for New Enterprise. And so I stayed there four years, and we built uh, a program with courses and with uh, workshops and with lectures. And that's how I first got close to you, as you came and spoke there. And it was a phenomenal experience, and we've stayed close ever since. And that's when you invited me to come and teach public speaking at the MBA program. And that kind of launched my university professor side of my life, which I just absolutely cherish and love. Thank you so much for believing in me. I actually ran into a student from that class uh, recently who told me how much he liked being in your class. It was like 11 or 12 years ago. It was. <laughs> so talk to us about your first book that you wrote. It's so intriguing. The title is profound. What you need to understand, <clears throat> my friends, is that 87% of the books that are purchased are never read. And so it's really about the compelling title that gets our attention. And then usually what we do is we look at the front side of the book, and then we immediately turn it over and look at some of the endorsements, whatever the, the, the synopsis is. We open it up, look at the compelling chapter titles, and then read the first 15 pages. But the question is, why should I listen to you? Have you done it? Are you currently doing it? And to your point, Michael, you did it. You're currently doing it. You have always done it. Take us back to your very first book and how that came about. So when I left the world of academics and I was um, teaching, I've been teaching there and I realized that what we were teaching really was not what happened in the real world. So after building some companies, I was asked to go back and teach again and it was even more clear that what was being taught wasn't what entrepreneurs did. And I had read the book by Studs Terkel called Working, which was a bestseller. And he just went out and interviewed a whole bunch of people in different industries they described what their jobs were like. So it's just oral histories. And I thought, what if we had a book of oral histories of entrepreneurs that just talked about how they started their companies from A to Z, when the first idea came to where they were today. And so I, sent a, I picked the top industry leaders, 100 entrepreneurs around America that were really gaining market share and introducing new, innovative, disruptive products. And I sent out these uh, invitations. I said, I'd love to interview for this book. And how, how many would you guess out of 100 said, yes, I'd love to be included? I think all 100 because you're making them feel needed and significant and relevant. So I was this you know, young guy right out of my professorship. And 97 of them said, yeah, that would be awesome. 
And a three, I just couldn't connect with. So, but, so I interviewed these people. I put them in a book. And, and what they kept telling me, I said, you know, how did this happen? And they'd all say, well, it's kind of an accident. And I'd say, well, why is it an accident? And then they described the concept of pivoting. That you launch the best idea you have. You throw an experiment out there. You get feedback. And you realize, i got to pivot a little bit. I've got to repackage it. I've got to uh, redo the product. I've got to redo my pricing. And and then you just keep doing experiments and getting feedback and experiments and getting feedback. And after a while, you built a company that isn't what you started out with. And so they said, I kind of just pivoted into this accident. So so we called the book Glorious Accidents. And that was the first book on entrepreneurship. Really, that we wrote. And to relate it to our own personal experiences, um, that's why we call timeout when you have confusion on the field or the court. You call timeout and check in with the coach. Number two... Uh, in football, we stop the play and huddle up to pivot to figure out what we do next. And number three, not every play is designed to score a touchdown. One sets up the next, which sets up the next. And then to your point, once you figure it out, then that receiver or that running back breaks loose for that 30-yard scamper to, to score the game-winning touchdown. So glorious uh, accidents. Yeah, so it's real interesting. They would say, I launched this. And it didn't work as well as we thought, so we moved over to here, and that worked better. And then we did this, and that didn't work, so we did that. And today we have this company, and it wasn't what we started at. But think about this. This is interesting, that investors, particularly banks and people that loan to entrepreneurs, they want to know that they're going to follow this strict, rigid plan. And if they vary from it, they'll go, hey, what are you doing? You told us you were going to build this. But the savvy investors will say, we want a team that knows how to pivot as they get feedback from the marketplace. And they Absolutely. might build something totally different. So brilliant. I hope you're taking notes. So the second book that followed. So the second book was called The Business of Heart. And it was the same concept, uh, but it was interviewing social entrepreneurs. This was over 20 years ago. I was actually one of the first to use that term in writing social entrepreneur. Explain that to our uh, subscribers. Well, social entrepreneur is a, an entrepreneur, a business leader, but that builds a company to do good and solve a social problem in the it can be a nonprofit or it can be a for-profit, but they're dealing with literacy or the environment or some issue, pollution, and they're creating products and services uh, that give them revenue to produce sustainability, but they're solving a social problem. So noble. So this book was similar to Glorious Accidents, but it had dozens of social entrepreneurs in it. Uh, really, now they're quite prominent, like Mimi Silbert of Delancey Street was one. Absolutely. I interviewed her early in. And Anthony Shriver, who started Best Buddies. And so there's a lot of cool companies in there uh, uh, about social entrepreneurs solving social problems. That was book number two. And book number three. As an author, what happens is the publisher, sometimes we say, I've got three books or I've got two books. And the publisher will say, time out. You give your best effort and, and put out that first best-selling book, all of your best information. And then your readers will tell, will tell you what the second book needs to be. What was your third book, boss? Same concept, isn't it? Absolutely. Wait, let me interrupt. What Michael's reminding us about is that there are timeless, irrefutable truths that apply to every generation and every age group. So when you have the 18-year-old kid at Utah State University or Westminster, maybe a, a, a non-traditional student getting his MBA, coming in at a night class, the principles, the guiding principles of entrepreneurship remain the same. And I remember devouring your list of seven points 
that make you a, a, an awesome and successful, significant entrepreneur. We don't have to get into the seven. I just want you to know I have read your books. <laughs> book number You're the three. Guy who read them, huh? Book number three, brother. Okay, book number three. I, I'm going to be real honest here. Is uh, I love cycling, and I wanted to ride my bike from the West Coast to the East Coast and see America, see this great country. I've lived in Saudi Arabia and other countries, and I love America, and I wanted to see it by bicycle. So I thought, okay, how do I create a business opportunity out of this? Such so a so good that, that's story. the truth. So what we did is we wrote a book called Main Street Entrepreneur. And as we crossed America on these bikes, 4,000 miles on a bike. We rode 4,000 miles, climbed about 150,000 feet of elevation in 45 days. And we interviewed entrepreneurs in small towns from the west coast of Oregon to the east coast of Virginia. And, um, we had a, a film crew with us. We had a bus, tour bus that followed us, and we uh, interviewed and filmed all these entrepreneurs, and we created a lot of little documentaries, and we created a book called Main Street Entrepreneur, and the book was published by Entrepreneur Press. They really liked the idea of kind of an entry-level book for people that want to put lifestyle as a priority and then figure out how to create a business around that. And so these people lived in small towns like Sisters, Oregon, with 2,000 people, but they're building national and international companies, which is now uh, something we can all do uh, with e-commerce. Absolutely. You know, small towns like Boring, Oregon, Cut and Shoot, Texas, Alligator, Mississippi, Toad Sec Ferry, Arkansas. Every time I talk to him, he reminds me that it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. It's not the size of the town, it's the size of the dream. So when you read your books, obviously anyone in any size town, little teeny tiny towns, if they just apply your principles of entrepreneurship, of organization, of turning your dream into reality, they can't make an excuse. There's nothing to do. Well, where did we get the convoluted idea that it's our community's responsibility to make our lives exciting and meaningful? No, we have to take charge. And your book is like a behavioral Bible. Every single book is a behavioral Bible. It's a mental meal that says, wait a minute. I've done it. You can do it, too. No matter what your past has been, you have a spotless future. Go for it. So thank you for that contribution to humanity. Thank you for that contribution to the entrepreneurial mindset that's really alive and well right now in 2022. You know, the interesting thing about this is uh, I think three or four of these people were trained in business formally, and almost none of them got any investment dollars. And uh, they built local businesses. One of them was a pon called the Ponderosa Forge in Sisters, Oregon. And wow. he was just a blacksmith, but, you know, his projects were kind of up and down, and they had downtime, and he didn't want to lay off his blacksmiths in the shop. So he started making implements, doorknobs, coat hangers, fireplace implements, you know, in the forge during the downtime, and now he sells those online all over the world. So he does, still does projects in Oregon, but he sells a lot of those products online. So they've all figured out how to capitalize on a local market as well as a more regional or national market out of a small location. Very cool. So, so at Utah State University, where I've had the privilege of speaking a few times for your on your entrepreneurship lecture series, last time you invited me into a board meeting, it changed my life, it touched my heart forever to see the quality, the psychic income in that boardroom of entrepreneurs, of business executives who support you and your ideas. Um, before we get to the final book and really accentuate the new launch of this book, and we all need to buy a copy, but more importantly, buy 10, 20 copies and give it away as a gift so that you can spread this beautiful message of entrepreneurship around the world. 
take me into this program that I was exposed to that I think is the heart and soul, almost the preamble to this last book that you've written because it connects you know, social entrepreneurship, philanthropy, uh, you know, for-profit, not-for-profit. It connects everything that I've learned from you in these first three books and our personal relationship. So explain what that program is at Utah State. You've invited uh, me and my family to join you in the Dominican Republic, and I, I hope we can fit, fit that into our schedule. I hope we can pull that off because I can't imagine how different we will be having associated with your idea and your entrepreneurial program. Yeah, we would love to have you come. What is it called? And teach us in, in, a, in a snapshot the, what it really is. The program is called SEED, S-E-E-D, and it stands for Small Enterprise Education and Development. And what we do is we hand select, we pick the best of the best students, 100 students each year, and they're from all majors, and they can be from different universities. It's not just for Utah State. But they're people that have a passion to do good and change the world. And we spend one full semester teaching them the skills of entrepreneurship and small business consulting and microfinance. And then they go out and live in the world. And we have students there uh, fall semester, spring semester, summer semester. So we're there full time all year. I just rented a new house in Pong, Ghana. Oh, my God. These students live in. And what they do is they go out and we partner with organizations like the Catholic Church and like government organizations, uh, aftercare centers for women rescued from the slave slave trade and these students then go in and teach these principles of entrepreneurship and help these people create small little businesses so they can take care of themselves and what typically happens is the person might be working as a maid making two hundred dollars a month in, in manila and after the first year we've been able to almost double in every case double that family income from four to four hundred or five hundred dollars so it's doesn't sound like a lot of money but in Pasig City in the Philippines or in Pong, Ghana, or in Guatemala, it's moving them out of that poverty class. So the students have this transformative experience where they, they come back and say, I didn't realize that I hit the jackpot in life and that I won the lottery, and I, I'm going to be grateful for what I have. And the second thing they say is, I, I want to be a giver. I want to be a giver, not a taker in my life. So it really changes the student, and that's, you know, one of our main priorities because we're an educational institution, but it also changes the people that, that we teach. And we've taught about 5,000 uh, individuals and families over the last years, and we've helped start and grow, we're guessing, seven to 800 companies, uh, wow. somewhere in that range. And so we're reopening everything right now because I'm traveling back out around the world to reopen everything after the lull in COVID. What we did during COVID is we did virtual mentoring. We continued the program, but we did it, you know, virtually from Utah. Uh, but we were still in contact with people around the world. So cool. So leaving a legacy, you know, not just making a difference, excuse me, not just making a living, making a difference. So that brings up the fourth book. What's the title? And talk to us about the six powerful principles, guiding principles that you eliminate in them in that book. So this book's called One People, One Planet, and the subtitle is Six Universal Truths for Being Happy Together. And happy together is really important. In all the research that we've done, uh, and the study of you know, ancient texts and positive psychology, we've really discovered that the ultimate level of happiness is, occurs in the context of relationships with people. So there's a lot of books on happiness that say, go off and set a bunch of goals and go contemplate your life and and get control of your morning and accomplish one big thing each day and get in physical shape. And those are really important. 
I do all those things. I try to. But they're rather insular. They're inward-focused. And the greatest happiness comes uh, from building really positive civil relationships with other human beings and cooperating to create great communities. And so happy together is important. But the reason this book um, came up is that we're seeing really an epidemic of despair in this country. And I see it with high school and college students and the millennials that I work with. Uh, Here's some very sobering statistics. At the high school level, 40% of the students say that they're persistently sad. That's four out of 10. And 20%, one out of five, have thoughts of suicide from time to time. At the college level, 40% say they're so depressed during the semester there are times when they can't do their work. And 60% say they're lonely most of the time. And these are reputable studies done by the Centers for Disease Control and the National Institute for Mental Health. And they conclude that overall in America, 21% of the adults suffer from one form of mental illness or another. And so, you know, I've been really troubled by that. And um, I've been a student of world religions most of my life. When I was uh, early in my career, I went and worked in Saudi Arabia. And when I was working there, they told me now, uh, Professor Glauser, if you talk about religion, you're going to get fired. If you talk about politics, you're going to get fired. I said, okay, great. But all my Saudi colleagues were asking me, hey, tell us about your religion. And I would say, hey, I can't talk about that. And they'd say, no, 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 no. You can't talk about your religion, but we can tell you about ours. I said, okay, let's do it. And so essentially they lined me up with a spiritual leader in the community, and I had a series of discussions, much like the Mormon missionary lessons in Islam, and I agreed to take those lessons if he agreed to teach me Arabic. And so I had that incredible experience of studying the second largest world religion and comparing it with my own faith, Christianity. And what I found is if if you do away with some of the mysteries like did we live before this life? And are we going to live after? And is there a heaven and a hell? And what's God like? Then there's differences in these religions. But if you look at what these teachers taught us about how do we be happy on the earth? How do we build really nice relationships? And how do we build civil communities? Their teachings are almost identical. So that's kind of how the project got started. I was concerned about the epidemic of despair. And I was seeing some really awesome principles in this literature I was reading. So I, I focused on the Hindu sages, the Vedas, their, their teachings. I focused on Buddha from the Pali Canon, the original writings. And then I focused on Christianity and Islam and found these common principles kept occurring over and over and over again. But then... Case in point, if you look up the golden rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you, there's a version, almost word verbatim version, in every single one of the top 14 world religions, not just the top four or five most popular or biggest or largest world religions. Yeah. To your point, I love what you're saying. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, I recognize that not everyone loves religion. In fact, the millennial generation is bailing out of religion faster than any other demographic in history, and they don't like the structure and the rules and the sad thing is they're kind of throwing out the values they were taught as they throw out the structure. So I thought, okay, well, let's move from religion to philosophy. Let's read what the great philosopher said about happiness and civility. And I focused on the Asian uh, philosophers, mostly Confucius, and then the Greeks, you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and then Seneca and Cicero, the Romans, and found that when they talk about happiness and civil communities, they, they talked about the same things. So I thought, okay, 
you might not like religion, you might not like philosophy, let's go to science. So the third source of knowledge, I went to uh, the last 20 years of research in positive psychology, which is a new field. Uh, Absolutely. And there are thousands of articles on happiness and civility. And they vet every one of those principles from the ancient texts, from the religious leaders and wow. philosophers. So I just said, hey, let's put these in a book and teach these basic principles of happiness, improved relationships, and improved civility. And then I thought, my goal's always been to write a book that's not boring. And you know, writing a business book that's not boring is, is a challenge. <laughs> so I thought, why don't I go interview people that have turned their lives from despair to joy and have them teach these principles through these stories. So as I've done in other books, it's a book of stories of people that uh, ex-convicts, women rescued from the slave trade, people living in poverty, everyday women and men that just were depressed and now they're not depressed. And so, um, you know, if it helps, if this book helps a small group of people, I'll be thrilled. If it helps a big group of people, I'll be even happier. But the goal is to help us figure out how to be happier, find more joy in life, and live more civilly together in our community. You know what, I've, I've read one book a week for the last 16 and a half years, and you, it's, it's rare to come across a book that's generational that actually creates its own ripple effect. You read this, it affects the way you treat your family, you, you impart the wisdom to your children, to the next generation as they become responsible adults, become parents. They will f- never forget those time-tested or futile truths that you focused in on. You know, religions for, pe- for people who are afraid to go to hell, spirituality is for those of us who have already been there. And <laughs> I think as you thumb through the pages of your book and you sent me that... Uh, that copy is so amazing, Michael. Good for you. Keep going. Well, the, the thing I've tried to do is write a timeless book. I didn't want to bind it to the COVID era. era. I want it to be timeless. And these principles have been around for 5,000 years. You know, the Hindu sages, whether you, you know, believe in a faith or not, you can't read these manuscripts and not be touched and impressed by these people 5,000 years ago forming communities and sitting around and thinking and talking and praying about the purpose of life and how do we become happier and how do we alleviate suffering and how do we become civil with each other. It's just very impressive. And I find that if you're from one faith or another, you tend not to want to go read the literature of another faith, but to see the commonalities have been really impressive to me. And in fact, um, there's a concept in philosophy called perennial philosophy. It was introduced by the European philosophers in the 15th century. And their idea is that there is some force in this universe. It's an energy field. It's God. It's whatever. And if you seek answers to the human condition, you will get the same answers. And so basically that, that shows that throughout time, people have discovered the keys to happiness and civility. And it's, those have been around forever. We just have to find them and implement them. I didn't just I didn't make them up. I found them in this ancient literature. So to sum up our conversation, uh, how do we follow you? How do we find? How do we how do we join the Michael Glauser tribe for continued inspiration? How can we support financially, emotionally the seed program at Utah State University, which is global, obviously? How can we just get behind you? Teach us how to how to keep in touch. Well, this. Uh, the book is part of a broader uh, project. We also have a, a course for high schools and, and universities that we'll introduce this fall. And then we have a course for the public that shows these people from the book. You're in that course, Dan. I know. And you can go to onepeopleoneplanet.com and 
learn all about our corporate training programs, uh, the speaking that I do, the book, the, the community training program. If you want to learn about the SEED program, you just go to the Huntsman School of Business. It's huntsman.usu.edu and, and uh, click on programs, study and departments. You'll find the SEED program. We have some great videos there of the people that we've taught around the world and mm. the uh, impact it's had on our students. Absolutely. So uh, as I teach public speaking at different universities around the country, I always talk about my inverted triangle. There's three questions that every person needs the answers to, one-on-one, one-on-ten, one-on-50,000. Why should I listen to you? The credibility piece, obviously, you've done so much research research you're so passionate you're so educated you're so curious about this cause of entrepreneurship and social civility thank you the second question is can i do it too with my past with my weaknesses with my limitations and with my strengths and i think you've sufficiently answered that as well as i said all four of your books are behavioral bibles they're a manual they're, they're a, an instruction manual if you will to becoming a better human being um, and the third question is, how do I do it? How do I get from where I am to where I want to be? And you just illuminated the truth that um, truth is truth where it's found on any ground. And Plato taught all knowledge is recollection. So whenever any of us stand up in front of an audience or engage in a one-on-one conversation, we say something profound or evocative, and the other person or the people nod their heads in agreement we're not teaching them anything new. They're recalling something that they already learned in a previous experience. So what you're teaching us is truth is there. It's our responsibility, regardless of our race, regardless of our gender, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our country or language. It's our responsibility to find the truth. And now you've made it easy for us by putting it all in just one <laughs> book. Well, I, I want to say one last thing that's, that's really important. I, so I've been teaching entrepreneurship for 30 years, and I love it had a lot of successes but the reality is if you teach a hundred people you know not all of them are going to be able to start a business they they don't have a good idea or a concept or they don't have the passion or they don't have the perseverance or whatever but with these six principles in this book they they happen in real time if you do one or several of them today you will be happier today guaranteed if you do all of them over time, they'll become a permanent part of your character, and it will 100% uh, elevate you to a brighter, uh, more joyful life. There's no question about it. They are proven. They work in real time. Let's do them today, and we'll be happier today. What's the name of the book? One People, One Planet. What are the six truths? Okay, the first one has to do with giving up the ego or your uh, limiting self-perceptions. Okay, number two. The next one is getting rid of your judgments and biases of other people. Wow. Which uh, limits your ability to make great relationships. Number three. The next one is just doing good deeds daily, random good deeds, not thinking of yourself, but looking for other people that, whose lives you can bless today. Number four. Uh, the next one is a powerful one, forgiveness. Get rid of all your anger mm -hmm. and your uh, hard feelings. Forgive people. Uh, cut them slack. Realize they're going to be different tomorrow than they are today, so why hold? You know, anger towards them. It only hurts us. Exactly. If you hold a grudge, it's like you drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. I know we know that that truth. Number five. So five has to do with material possessions and attachment. Uh, we're, we're only happy up to a certain point of income and possessions. And then beyond that, they don't make us happy. In fact, they can even cause problems of greed and hoarding. And so just sharing what we have. 
And the third one is, is number really... Number six, not the third. Sorry. I'll help him. He's I, a I philosophical genius, I'm but apparently he's not really good at math. <laughs> I'm getting as old as you, Dan, so... <laughs> I think I'm older, actually. I love it. I know you're not. So the sixth one is that in every community, there are people that are re- truly suffering. Mm. Uh, they have mental illness, emotional, physical illnesses. They have, they've lost a job. Or they're out of income. Uh, they've gone through a divorce. And so it's finding someone that is going through a period of suffering and really helping that. And if every one of us would find someone that was suffering and we would help them longer term, this is a little different than just doing daily good deeds. It's helping someone who's suffering through a crisis. Yes, and then our, our dear friend John Huntsman Sr. so eloquently said, the quickest way and fastest way and strongest way to strengthen ourselves is to reach down and help somebody else up. And that's what you do in your books. That's what you do in your public speaking. That's what you do in your courses, your classes. That's what you do in your friendship. I love you, Mike Glazer. I honor you. I admire you, which is the most powerful word, I think. And I appreciate you for joining me on the show. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be with you. Awesome. Don't you miss this episode. And once you listen and you listen again, buy his book and then buy about 20 copies and share it with the world. Again, the title... One People, One Planet, Six Universal Truths for Being Happy Together. One People, One one Planet, you be that one that makes the difference. Thanks for joining us. The views and opinions expressed on the Power Players podcast do not necessarily reflect those of KUTV or Sinclair Broadcast Group.